friends. Welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I'm East Forest, coming to you today from Boise, Idaho. And today we have a really great episode with Jamie Kilstein. And Jamie's a comic and an author, and he's been the thick of a lot of things for many years. And um, I, we came across each other because he had had a really powerful experience and journey to the Music for Mushrooms album and the Ram Dass album on psilocybin. And I was on his podcast, which was a lot of fun. And I invited him on this one because I I appreciate people who are <laughs> direct and have ideas and take risks and chances. And I just wanted to um, to talk and get more into his world. And I thought we had a really valuable conversation. We get into some of that stuff about psychedelic experiences and a lot of stuff about society and culture and cancel culture and just talking about it, which is always good in my mind. Uh, the antidote to a lot of things is is just listening and talking. It's it's okay. So I really, really appreciated this conversation, and I think you will too. And as usual, I want to point out the timeline of this conversation because it, it was recorded uh, just before George Floyd was killed. We recorded this in May. And uh, so, you know, it's important to know that context. And we talk in, in our sort of discussions about like, well, cancel culture and things like that. Even he brings up, I believe, Nako. And Nako is someone who I've recently learned is is also embroiled in some serious allegations. But it's more reasons like that also was not something that had come to light and to the surface when we were talking about it. So just wanted to give you a sense of the timeline of when this conversation occurred. Um, last week, I mentioned that I was doing uh, some stuff about ketamine in the therapy experience I've been doing here at the Boise Ketamine Clinic with my partner, Rada. And uh, things shifted a bit, shall we say, Uh <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll keep this short and sweet, but as like a public service announcement, I just want to say something I didn't really realize, and I take full responsibility for this. It's freaking powerful, that medicine. Like, I, for some reason, did not do my complete due diligence as far as l- doing some research into the power of that medicine, ketamine, and where it can take you. And so I had some experiences with the oral administration of it, which were um, anything from mellow to strong, but still positive and sort of, I don't want to say easy to work with. I mean, it's very profound, one of the journeys, one of the deepest I've had. Uh, but it, it had sort of a an, an ease to it still. And uh, for various reasons, I was given an intermuscular, like a shot for the most recent one on Monday night. And this was a whole nother ball game. I mean, I... I'll just say that I had never had an experience that powerful in my entire life times a thousand. <laughs> and I've had, I've been around the block. I've been in the, the Amazonian jungles with Peruvian shamans and Machu Picchu, beautiful shamans. I've had some experiences and some really challenging, even strong and positive, all sorts of experiences. And this one blew everything out of the water times a bazillion. Like, and I wasn't expecting that. So there was a kind of violence for me in the the unexpected launching of where it went. And then it went like way beyond 
experiences and dimensions that I even thought was possible. So I don't know what to say. I don't want to even try and sum it up because it's impossible. Um, and I'm going to be processing it for quite a long time. Uh, and I'm not saying it was bad. It was just, it was just, it was everything. And it was just above anything, incredibly, incredibly powerful and potent. So I'm just letting you know, like I didn't want to sound nonchalant last week. And for anyone out there who is considering ketamine therapy, uh, for depression or anything like that, um, just from my experience, I wanted to let you know that maybe you already know this. It can be extremely powerful and profound. And so walking into it, that mindset and preparation is a helpful idea. And, you know, maybe as I continue to process this, I can share more about it in the future as I have more takeaways. And like, I feel like I have some, but I don't want to just make it into a story right now because oftentimes the stories we tell about things that then becomes the thing, right? It's kind of a way our minds and our brains work. The story becomes the reality, the the, the memory, the truth. So I'm being a little careful about that in my integration. Um, But it rocked me beyond rocked. And my birthday was the next day and I had all these plans of various things that Rada had so lovingly prepared and canceled everything. Because I was just like in a complete stupor. My brain felt broken. It took me a long time to, I just felt, I had a hard time. I'm just be totally honest. I had a really hard time the next day. But I'm feeling a lot better now. And it's not that I feel like I've compartmentalized it or put it in any kind of box. I'm just feeling more like grounded on the planet in my body and back in my mind. And now I'm just sort of sitting with the experience and processing So. Just want to put that out there. Uh, I am going to the, the the Tetons, the Grand Tetons, for the first time uh, tomorrow. So I'm going to go see my friend Scott, and I'm going to go out there, do a little backpacking. Haven't really been anywhere besides here and my place in southern Utah, so I'm nervous but also excited to see this area of majestic nature that I haven't been to before. So that's exciting. And then when we get back, uh, I am recording some strings so the Boise Philharmonic, uh, uh, just a few players. I don't, I'm not hiring the whole Philharmonic. I wish I could, but bringing them over to the studio. We're going to do a little masked recording session for this new record that I'm working on that does not have a name yet, but I am so excited about these string parts. I've been working on string arrangements with Lorna Creer, a.k.a. Lorna Dune. She's out in Wisconsin right now, and like we're bouncing ideas back and forth and sheet music and parts and like... Oh my God, it feels like some next level stuff. It's just a lot of piano tracks with strings weaving in and out, some other instrumentation. So I'm pretty jazzed about that. And I'm jazzed about like getting to this point where it's really starting to come together. It's a really exciting place when you're working on a record. Some of these tracks on the record go back to 2019. uh, And they're just piano tracks that I've sort of been culling together. And um, yeah, so I'll keep you updated on the progress and maybe even share some some bits and pieces as there's something to share in the podcast. And last week, we released the Born Eye track, the East Forest rework. An amazing artist. Please check out Born Eye if you haven't. Uh, the song's called I Can't Breathe, East Forest rework, which is a really powerful song that he wrote. And I just wanted to do whatever I could to help uplift it and continue the conversation. You know, looking at what's going on in my, uh, my hometown of Portland, Oregon, uh, with these protests is troubling, really troubling. I mean, I, this is a very, very slippery slope with these federal troops coming in. It just feels like we're having fire breeding more fire. 
And above all, we need conversation. We need, we need compassion. We need listening. And we need, that's how the action, I believe, and the change can come. But it's really hard to see um, the kind of friction and violence in a place that is typically very awake and aware, but usually not a violent place, uh, Portland, from my experience of growing up out there. So I'm, I'm standing in solidarity with my brothers and sisters out there and uh, hoping we can move through this and de-escalate and, and get the kind of change and, and, and have our, hear our needs uh, and the kind of things that do need to shift out there. So, yeah. Um, hey, if you get a chance to review the podcast, thank you. It means a lot. And sharing it online on socials and, you know, online, as opposed to in person. I suppose you could share it in person. That's cool, too. You can just do this thing called telling someone about it in person. All those ways you support is lovely, and it means a lot to me. And having this community and hearing, seeing the messages and that you send and the way you post and tag East Forest on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, those are the sorts of things is, is great. Uh, you can always send an email to team at eastforest.org and... Thank you for doing that. Thanks for being part of this uh, part of this whole uh, CD monthly music club or whatever it is. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Jamie Kilstein. The universe is a manifestation of the one. I don't know. Sometimes, depending on the music genre, the you can get away with those. What is it? Those limitations can be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. Like some of the first streams I did in this COVIDian time were like right away. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so it kind of had sort of a sweet, probably authenticity because it was sort of lo-fi. Yeah. Like my friend's like, yo, what camera are you using? I'm like, it's the laptop. Yep. <laughs> like yep. I open my laptop and it's go. Um, but I don't know. Do you feel like you have more freedom in the comedy sphere to kind of lean into that? I feel like I have more freedom in every aspect of my creative life during quarantine not because i'm necessarily not because i necessarily figured out how to kill it but because i'm recognizing that i had so much fear even when i was at higher levels i had so much fear of what other people would think yeah about what i was making that quarantine almost makes it feel like there's never going to be an audience again, which obviously there is. Like, I'm already booking stand-up gigs again, and the internet is a bigger audience than, you know, shows. But there's something about, and this is the first year that I haven't lived in Los Angeles, so something about being out of L.A. and being kind of by the mountains, being in nature, and then just making my art in my home with no performance. No, oh, well, that audience didn't really like that. And this person didn't really like this. And like my agent wasn't crazy. Like the thing that's making me the most money right now, as, since I don't have stand up gigs, is a jujitsu podcast that my agent was like, don't do that. And it's making a ton of money because I just, I give a shit about it, one. And it's a niche sort of market. And so getting out of LA just sort of forced me to stop, even at a, the, the most subconscious level stop listening to those people and just make the shit I want to make. And it turns out the shit I want to make is dope. So now the challenge is, can I carry this sort of newfound confidence and not give a shitness out of quarantine once I start going back to LA more, once I start performing more, and that's going to be the goal. 
That is the key, I think, to interesting art is, I know it's sort of a cliche, not giving a shit, but it's really, really true. Yeah. Like for me, it, it, it more translated, the more proper way of saying it for me was I stopped pandering. I like I that. stopped thinking like, what do people want to hear? Or maybe I'll change this because I think that's what the audience, I think that's what they want to hear, yes. so to speak. And it's yep. just not as interesting. It happens frankly. all the time. I mean, if you went to, I'll use, whenever people ask me podcast advice, I always use Rogan as an example. And then I'm going to put you in the same situation because it'll be equally fun, which is if Rogan, if no one knew who Rogan was and he went to pitch his podcast to CAA or William <laughs> Morris or something big, and he's like, all right, I'm going to interview like hardcore hunters, but then I'm going to have Bernie Sanders on. And here, here's the best part. It's three hours long. They'd be like, get the fuck out of my office. If you went into Warner Brothers on day one and you're like, all right, I'm going to make an album all for people to take psychedelic drugs to. Here's the best part. It is five and a half hours long. Like, get the fuck out of my office. And you and Rogan would sadly wave to each other in the lobby as you're being escorted out by security. But when you follow your fucking gut, and your instinct. I mean, I can trace everything good I did in my career was me just going, ah, fuck it. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm going to do it. It was never yeah, confidently. True. And then yeah. everything, every time I started to flop or when things would go really bad were when I was, again, it was always subconscious because I think people, when they hear the word pandering or selling out, they think that oftentimes it is this malicious calculated act, but it's not. You can still think that I'm being an artist and I'm being rebellious and I'm doing this stuff while you start to pander and you don't even realize it until it's you're- It's unconscious. Yeah, largely. 100%. Yeah. yeah, no, you're totally right. It's it's sneaky. It's super mm -hmm. sneaky. As a matter of fact, if I'm just trying to think of the people like Rogan, by the way, got $100 million for following Insane. his passion. <laughs> you know, the first time I did his podcast, it was at his fucking house. I did yeah, it there you go. House. That's how it started. Because he just wanted to talk to people. And like, I just it was just at his place. Like, it's so fucking cool. It's very genuine for him too, because he clearly just, like you said, enjoys talking to people, <laughs> enjoys talking. And he really has an ability. Uh, other people have this too, but he has it in spades. Of he, he seems to be incredibly authentic. Like the filters are like, I really don't care. I, you know, every now and then he's dancing and like, well, you know, I shouldn't say this or that, but uh, he has an, an energy of that's just Joe. And his name's yeah. Joe, too, right? It's just that's kind so of like funny. he's yeah, yeah, that's, Joe. That's a great point. But yeah, and yeah. also, I mean, if you look at, you know, whenever I think about pitching, I'll think of m maybe The Wire where it's, hey, we're going to make a cop show where violence isn't glorified and it's actually kind of horrifying. And we're going to talk about the war on drugs and these kind of deeper levels at a political level and a, a, a media level or Breaking Bad. We're going to have this hero and it seems like it's going to be this wacky thing in the first season. But then suddenly the main character is a bad guy or Wally's. Wally's my favorite example yeah. because mm -hmm. it's, hey, we're going to do a silent animation where the closest thing to dialogue is a robot's eyes change, just like dumpster <laughs> robot. Uh, but then everyone else is kind of a fat and we're mocking capitalism and consumerism. And uh, it won a fucking Oscar, you know, and it's all it's about fantastic. the environment yeah. and climate change. And it's the, the, the trick is, well, what the trick was, and I think Rogan kind of is changing this is, how do we get the industry, the gatekeepers to take a chance on risky art when you're screaming at them? Like, look at what worked. So for me with comedy, 
I would always be told, you know, we really like it. We like that it's edgy. We like, you know, back in the day it was political, but don't do that. Don't do the, the, the edgy, the political, don't do the thing that they liked. And I would always show them that even though there are hundreds of comics who go on mainstream television and talk about, you know, oh, my, my shitty wife or whatever, no one cares about them. But the people who had longevity, who people still talk about, you know, Pryor, Carlin, Bill Hicks, uh, Chappelle, Chris Rock, Amy Schumer, Sarah Silverman, you know, they were all the people who took these huge risks and maybe it was harder for them in the beginning John Stewart, Colbert. I mean, fuck, Colbert took over for yeah. Letterman. You don't get yeah. more mainstream than like Letterman. And you tell them that and they go, yeah, but that's different. So the question is, do we try to get these gatekeepers to listen to the artists, to listen to us, or do we just start creating our own shit? And then that takes over and they have to either acclimate to the new climate or that they can get fucked, which I'm fine with. Well, how do you... Um create that kind of art where you're really trying to do it from your own authenticity or a freedom where essentially you're able to make mistakes. You have to be willing to say like, look, I'm, I'm going to take risks yeah. as opposed to there's a calculatedness. And I, I, I see that that's probably my biggest filter is sort of like, I've always got this sort of thing in my mind about like, you know, we all do this as we speak. We're sort of p- piecing together our words and thoughts. And now it's less like about what you're saying about like, the gatekeepers being the agents or the producers and stuff. And now it's kind of like in the Twitter sphere, it's like woke culture yeah. or it's sort of like the public itself becomes a mob yeah. in, in its opinions. And I think particularly in comedy, you're always treading in those waters of like, well, that's, that is the edge though, that on one hand people want to be swimming in is like, well, I want to see someone who's not filtering there in a the sense of they really are just kind of taking those risks of being a normal human being. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have so many thoughts on this. Before we get to the philosophical parts, I'll say that, you know, on my podcast, I've interviewed some of the biggest musicians, biggest actors, comedians, all of them are nervous and and not in the sense that there's a level of it. Yeah. There's there's always a consciousness of like, yeah, exactly. Like, what do I tweet? What do I, you know, and sometimes it's because of quote unquote, uh, it's because of cancel culture. Sometimes it's just, are people not going to like this? You know, they're just doubt- yeah, right. every artist that we all and that your audience loves has these doubts for sure. Um, for me, the quote, I mean, I stopped caring about Twitter and I'm just building my own audience, but it, that was really hard for me. And the quote that really hit me hard was, so you always hear, just make art for yourself. Just make the art you want to hear. And I was like, blah, blah, Mm. blah. Shut up. Like, I'm still terrified to make the art I want to hear. And I would literally picture strangers when I started to make music again. You know, what are these strangers that hated me politically? How are are they going to make fun of this if I post it? Oh, God. It was real. Like, it's really bad with me. I can guarantee it's worse uh, than what you What does the stranger look like? Yeah. Like, what are they going to tweet? How are they going to make fun of this? How are they? Whatever. But the, 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 the version of the cliche that I heard that for some fucking reason hit me and gave me permission is... 
during quarantine, which for me has just been like a psychedelic art retreat. <laughs> um, <laughs> during quarantine, I discovered there was a documentary on Showtime done maybe a year or a couple of years ago on Rick Rubin, the music producer. Um, for anyone listening who doesn't know, you know, produced from Public Enemy to the Beastie Boys to like Adele. And He's a lion in the field. Yeah. Lion, huge into meditation, um, big beard. You will recognize him. Um, and... He said, you know, the cliche part, which is you should know the audience matters the least. You should be making art for yourself. But then the line that got me, and I'll tell you why, was one word, is he goes, you should, he was talking to Seth Godin somehow. And he goes, your art, or in this case, your music should be somebody's favorite and also the example of the kind of music somebody hates. And the word that gave me permission was hates. Because I remember David Tell told me once, David Tell's a great comic, uh, you either have a good show or a good story. Um, That's kind of similar. And that gave me permission that if I'm going down, I'm going to go down in flames. And there was something about when he said you should be hated by some people, suddenly I went, oh, like this thing I feared is actually correct. They can hate it. And giving it so much more power, it's weird. You would think that would make me more nervous, but being like, if people hate you, that's a good thing. As long as then you have people who also love you and you know, you're not trying to be purposefully antagonistic. You're just making your art. I think that that's really, really cool. That's what gave me permission to start making music again, to start kind of combining uh, all the things I do and and even making the weird comedy videos that I make on Instagram. I was like, cool, I don't give a shit anymore. And ever since then, it's been the best response I've gotten on everything, stand-up, music, sketches, you know, all, all that stuff. But it was just giving yourself permission to be hated while also you, yeah, of course you still want to be loved and liked and you want your art to speak to people and it will, it will find those people, but don't let the people who hate you stop you because they're not your fucking audience. But you're, you're not saying, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. You're not saying it's about intentionally being divisive no. so that there are people who hate you because you could look at someone like Donald Trump, who I, I suppose you could argue is very successful in the sense of, mm-hmm. you know, he got the ultimate thing he wanted, the ultimate yeah. attention. Uh, by being how many people can I get to hate me, but then I'll get all these people who love me through yeah. the hate. Yeah, well, uh, that's a great point. And I should say, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm sure you guys know, uh, East and I both huge Donald Trump uh, supporters. And <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, you're right. He's the equivalent of an open micer. So this is what I always say about Pompey. <laughs> and, uh, but like an open micer who's like dad had connections and he somehow got like a TV pilot and then became president. Uh, and and possibly sexually assault. It's fine. So <laughs> the this is the problem with going back to what you were saying with cancel culture and with people being afraid. You very rarely find gray area conversations like me and you are having. And where I stand on that is we should not live in a world where we are looking to cancel people, waiting for people to make mistakes, living in this negative time. And instead of us creating art, we're going on Twitter looking for more successful artists who fucked up so we can go, ha, 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 they fucked up. We get our dopamine hits. We don't get criticized, et cetera. I think that's really bad and toxic. And not only that, but we don't root for redemption, right? So... 
we don't want. So when Kevin Hart had those like really shitty homophobic tweets from 10 years ago and apologized about them, people were like, it doesn't matter that you apologize. It doesn't matter that you're a successful black man. It doesn't matter that you want to help the LGBT community. You should be punished for that. And that to me is really toxic. And I still consider myself very liberal. And I think that kind of goes against liberal principles of like forgiveness and prison reform and wanting people to, to, to become their best self. Right. So with comedy and to your point, I think that when you have cancel culture on the left going so haywire, the pushback you get from a lot of comics, not even just conservative comics is fuck you. I'm going to be as offensive as possible. And then right. we'll that is what you're talking about, which is just kind of gross. I'm going to see if I can use the N word. I'm going to, you know, whatever. And part of it is some of those comics are fucking scumbags. And part of it is a pushback to cancel culture. So you have extremes on both sides. My kind of in the middle view, because look, every interview I did, I had like two years where I was almost famous and I was going overseas a lot. And like every interviewer was comparing me to Hicks and Carlin. And so I ran with that and I was like smoking cigarettes and trying to be it. <laughs> all this stuff it was really bad. And, uh, and I would always say nothing's off limits. Fuck the PC. You know, I mean, I sounded like Republican pundits sound now, even though what I was talking about was very left wing. It was, you know, fuck the church, fuck homophobia, fuck Bush, all this stuff. But now what I see is every issue you should be able to talk about. That's where I agree with the people who are like, fuck PCness. We should be able to talk about race, misogyny, homophobia, the president, the church, all these institutions, capitalism, whatever. But there is a difference between using edgy language, walking that line to make a point about, let's say, racism. And I'm just going to use derogatory slurs to get a groan from the audience. And even before cancel culture, this has been something that's always happened in comedy. Groans and even boos are better than silence. So you have these open micers or these newer comics who are just trying to make other comics laugh. And how do they do that? Just be as offensive as possible. And then those comics laugh and the audience goes, whatever. And you get to go, yeah, I'm Bill Hicks. Fuck you. Like Bill Hicks got the audience to boo or groan, but you're not Bill Hicks. You're just someone who like called an audience member who paid money a cunt for some yeah, It's hacky. Yeah. It's just yeah. hacky. Totally. Yeah. But you look at someone like Dave Chappelle, you look at someone like we should be able to take these really scary off topic ideas and if you can make that, if you can get someone to laugh at something really scary, really offensive, that's actually really beautiful and cathartic. And I think it's a really progressive, wonderful thing. But now if, if you're so scared that people are going to cancel you for using a word, if you don't look at like, well, where was that word in context? It's like, that's where we have trouble. Yeah, we don't want to be making art where the stakes are that high that you make a mistake and your entire career is over. Right. I mean, there's there's a big thing to be said for intentionality. I mean, look, if someone's just malicious, yeah, you know, we can protect ourselves and make boundaries and stuff. But in a bigger philosophical way, uh, it's almost like we miss on a human level, like the Roman Colosseum. Like we want to see someone die. Yep. We want to see yep. them get ripped apart. And I, 
even things like the fact that we still have the death penalty in our country is not something that I support because I feel like killing someone is just sort of like fire breeding fire. No matter what they've done, it really doesn't help. It's just sort of, it's like what's harder is to just sort of say, this is part of our journeys. We have to reconcile ourselves what it means to me. And like the truth and reconciliation committees in South Africa, I think that's what they were called. Like that kind of stuff made a lot more sense to me of of actually like moving the needle inside your psychology and your emotions. So you see it in the culture of particularly in comedy because comics are are really playing with fire because they're like, I'm going to go up to the edge Mm. of, of, of toying with things that could offend people. That's sort of the whole point of it in a way. Sure. And, by doing so, you're, you're getting into this like limbic system of, our, of ourselves about like, we like to see also, there's a part of us, yep. you know, this animalness. It's like, I want to see someone just die in front of me, which is yeah. kind of what canceling is now. Dude, totally. And uh, remind me if I miss this. I'll, I, I, I want to say something about the death penalty because that's such a brilliant comparison, the kind of cancel culture with the death penalty mentality, because neither of them work, right? But first, just for any of your audience that kind of like, doesn't know me, I don't want to be one of those straight white comics that's like, fuck you, I can say whatever I want, blah, 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 because there is that right now. That's it's, different. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. hard to be a white guy. It's like, it, things are weirder now, but like, it's still fucking easy for me. Like, my life's still pretty good. Um, So all of that kind of disclaimer, you know, the reason that I think that offensive, quote unquote, comedy is good is again, back in those two years where I did interviews, whenever someone asked me, you know, were you the class clown? I would always say, no, the class clown beat the shit out of me. The class clown, like I was the nerd. The class clown was usually that hack, usually the one screaming the derogatory words, the kind of Trump figure. Whereas a lot of comics were the nerds in the back journaling because we couldn't really defend ourselves with our words because we were terrified. And my first comedy memory of is sad. Oftentimes when I'm being interviewed, they're like, aren't you supposed to be funny? Cause all my answers are tragic, but I don't remember like, yeah, I remember, you know, using my boom box to tape John Stewart's like HBO one night stand in the nineties and shit like that. But honestly, when I pinpoint why I do the kind of comedy I do, it was, you know, I grew up with an alcoholic mom and things were really bad and at, all the cliches, you know, hospital on Christmas, birthdays, past that, like all the sad shit you can manufacture, I went through. And I remember one day she was being taken away by either the cops or the, the uh, ambulance. And me and my brothers were all up in my room and I'm the oldest. And we were horrified and sad. And it wasn't until one of us made a joke and it's going to be an offensive joke because it's in the context of our mom drunkenly being taken away. We all started laughing so cathartically. And then once that laughter happened, we got to go, okay, now we get to get to work. Right. And same deal with comedy. You know, I was talking about the Iraq war a lot while the Iraq war was happening. And I wasn't trying to be like, fuck the troops or whatever. I was trying to make a larger point. And then, Hey, if we can laugh about this now, maybe we can talk about this, you know, like that's why, things shouldn't be taboo. So with the death penalty and with cancel culture, you're right. And uh, cancel culture, I think has a lot to do with depression. I know when I was sort of on that side and I was trying to take people down on Twitter and I was getting into fights every day, it's because I was depressed and I was in a bad relationship and I didn't have a community of people in my real life. And I would just get validation. I mean, shit, dude, anytime I tweet, like, 
hey, check out the new East Forest album or, hey, I really like this movie. It'll get like two likes. But any like your friend, Nako is going to do my podcast. And we hooked up because I posted about uh, his album. And I think he was like probably the only one who like liked it. And, you know, I don't have <laughs> I don't have a huge following, but I have like thirty five thousand people on there or something. And but if I go at some politician or if I start talking shit or if I go, you know, oh, we got to cancel Jimmy Fallon. I think that's the thing today. I didn't read it. It's going to blow up. And so when I was super depressed, I would write all this toxic stuff and it would just get refreshed, refreshed, retweeted. Suddenly Questlove's following me on Twitter and I'm like, oh, now I want the rest of the roots to follow me. And so I fucking post some more (laughs) shit. And so it became addicting. And I think that at least with Twitter and cancel culture, a lot of it has to tie in with, hey, man, if you're on Twitter all day attacking other people, what's going on in your life? Because for me, I can say nothing. I was very sad and depressed. And... With the death penalty, what fascinates me the most is, yeah, there is something inside us that wants to see people burn on both sides. Because I used to speak up a lot against the death penalty, and I still will. It just hasn't been as much in public conversation. You look at statistics. You look at numbers. There are even studies done that show it not only is a shitty punishment, because what if they're innocent? There's no going back. Right. There's that. Yeah. In theory, life in prison would be far worse. But you have the chance to, like, take them, you know, uh, if you do make a mistake, you can r- let them go. But also that it's not even good incentive. Because they go, well, I'm going to die anyway. So I might as well up this manslaughter to double homicide. Like, it doesn't even <laughs> prevent uh, uh, crimes at all. And so with such logic behind that, but what, but you still get people like, yeah, but I want him to die. And it's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of, I don't know. It, it's it's primal. justice. Yeah. It's very primal. And that's, it's sort of like, it's okay. That's part of our being in a sense that like, look, we are animals, but it seems to be like, there's a point of evolving as people on this planet. That, that seems to be the point. Yes. And it's a clear direction that we can move in. We just haven't quite gotten there in this country yet all of us politically yeah. um but it, it, going back to um when you're making comedy you said about being offensive i, I just want to like push on that to get a little more information yeah like is that the mechanism you're using like that's sort of like a doorway for you or do you because f- look when people are offended i feel that just like in a relationship there's no way you can't make mistakes and say things that are unskillful Sure. Okay. <laughs> you will offend each other. You will say things you regret. To use. Yeah. <laughs> so I was trying to be, I mean, that's so perfect. I I've been it. in therapy. Okay. <laughs> it's so good. That was unskillful. Uh, oh, so good. So good. So good. So good. Okay. All right. Continue. So when that happens, you don't immediately cancel your wife or husband because that would be, wow, what a waste. Right. You, you work on it. Sometimes you make very, very unskillful moves and yep. you still try because you realize the benefit of of essentially atonement and hearing each other and understanding and actually and what's going on at the end of the day growth yeah you're you're learning and sometimes you you can't get over certain things but you loosen the grip on it over the years it just the sting is it's just not as you know it's not like a like a transgression of infidelity or something and maybe it's like look it's there inside me but i love you and I'm going to move forward with that. 
Yeah. You know, it's not it, black it, and white. If you're not rooting for evolution, it's really hard. And, you know, if you're in a relationship and I'm single for the first time in my life right now and I'm like learning so much, so much. And what I always, what I think in relationships is if you can enter into a relationship and, you know, let's say you you guys get into a fight and instead of me wanting to, and let's say my girlfriend was wrong, right? Instead of me wanting to like rub it in her fucking face, if she comes to me and if she's working on herself and she goes, hey, that thing I said was shitty and unskillful, I'm really sorry. And then if me, instead of going, yeah, it was, if I go, yeah, it was, thank you. I want to get to a point though, where maybe I don't get quiet and sulk and I, and I, I should have brought it up quicker, you know, mm-hmm. and you're both trying mm-hmm. to figure out what the other person could do. Obviously that's the dream situation. Politically, what I've noticed is ever since I kind of stopped being on this Twitter progressive left side that explodes at any touch, I've talked to so many conservatives and had really lovely conversations with them. <laughs> and when you're not on Twitter and you're not talking in sound bites and you're not yelling at each other and you see each other as human, and I'm not talking about fucking monsters or racists or anything like that. I'm talking about people who were like raised conservative and, you know, they're like, oh, I'm for gay marriage, but I have a gun. You know, old me would have been like, you're still a Nazi. Whereas now learning, oh, you have a gun not because you're pro school shooting, but because you think that's the best way to protect your family. And now I see you as someone who wants to protect their family. And now maybe we can talk and maybe you'll be willing to listen to me more about, let's say background checks or about what kind of guns do you actually need or whatever. And so again, that kind of hearing people out, seeing them as human, then having the political conversations is so huge seeing your partner as someone who loves you and is trying and maybe fucked up is so huge. Um, with your comedy question. Yeah. I'll never write something to try to be offensive. I write what makes me laugh and nothing is more fun to me than watching a comedy special and going, Oh, ah, and then laughing like that, like quick, like, Holy shit. Gut punch. And then laughing is very cathartic to me. The issues I've always cared about have been kind of those tripwire issues. You know, when I started being political, it was about gay marriage under George Bush. Don't ask, don't tell. And then that led me to going after the church. And but there's a difference between going, oh, you're religious. You're fucking stupid. And going, hey, here's a very powerful institution trying to take down a minority. The way I always did it and the way I still do it is I want to stick up for the people who are oppressed. I don't want to make fun of people. So I don't have any Trump jokes and I'm not going to have any Trump jokes because I think that's really hacky. I want to talk about like larger concept. So I'm not, I don't want to make fun of religious people. I want to say, Hey, religious people, you should be outraged at the church too. I'm not going to make fun of vets, but I'm going to go, Hey, it's fucked up that these guys are sending you to war and then you're coming back and you can't find jobs or you're fucking killing yourself or addicted to opiates. You know, I think the edgy, the comic trying to be edgy would be, you know, fuck the troops, fuck America, fuck whatever. 
I don't want to do that. So I end up in edgy territory by accident. You know, this is the first time I've talked about relationships in my act. And it's funny because I always thought that was hacky, but it's, I'm, I'm not watching the news a lot right now and I'm dating a lot and it still ends up having like my sort of weird edgy spin on it. And I'm talking in really about relationships in a much different way than I see other comedians do it. But for me, that's edgy right now, just because I yeah. never talked about that. Well, it's your edge. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's, but that's an authenticity. It's like, that is what your experience is as opposed to like, I shouldn't or should say this because that's what, you know. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to wants. with all art. It's being authentic because even though I'm kind of an edgier comedian and I, Dave Chappelle is probably my favorite comic, but I also have worked with and love as people and comics like John Mulaney and Jim Gaffigan and Jim Gaffigan is Jim Gaffigan. He is that mm -hmm. hot pocket guy. And, you know, and, and John Mulaney is John. John Mulaney speaks in perfect John Mulaney jokes. It's I was uncomfortable eating lunch with him because I was just like, he's just so funny. So but what John Mulaney, Jim Gaffigan have in common with George Carlin and Dave Chappelle is they are just being themselves. And for people who are trying to become musicians or comics, you know, I'm sure you even had that moment where there's a moment when you're learning an instrument and you play a riff that someone else's and you go, Oh, I'm doing music. Right. And it's like, no, you're doing that guy's music. Right. And maybe you're starting to figure out how to move your fingers and recognize melodies, but you don't want to stay on that path. You want to take what you learn from other artists and then figure out what your voice is. You know, it's, Dude, it's so wild with comedy, and I've said this on podcasts, but I will continue to say it. You could take the funniest, most progressive, wonderful person. You could take Michelle Obama or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you put them on stage at an open mic, and suddenly Michelle Obama is going to be like, so I'm fingering Barack's asshole. And you're going to be like, <laughs> what the fuck is happening? Because they just think like, this is what comedy sounds like. Just like when you're a new guitar player and you hit like, bow, 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 you're like, oh, that's what guitar sounds like. You know, all the famous comics and stuff, they say it takes eight to 10 years to find your voice, which sounds insane. It sounds ridiculous. And it is that. a thousand percent true. Yeah, I believe that. There's there's something to be said for how we have to hold contradictory truths in order to be able to inhabit the spaces you're talking about. And inherently, that's like, that's some complex stuff. You know, it's like, yeah. and to be able to say like, look, I... I don't agree with all of your beliefs, you know, but I can still try to look at you holistically or I can hold that. And there's part of me that's upset and there's part of me, maybe a large part of me that's not upset. I'm okay. Yeah. You know, you've got good qualities and things I don't like. And like, we need a little bit of, uh, allowing that. It's that that's what the polarization is in a sense, that tribalism of, uh, it's ideas. It's an idea in your head at the end of the day. Right. And also I mean, if, disagree with someone politically, don't you actually want to change their mind? Like if I'm just calling everyone who disagrees with something, I believe a Nazi, am I really doing it for the right reasons? Am I actually doing it? Because when I talk to someone who I disagree with, I want them, I either want to learn from it or if it's something as terrible as homophobia or whatever, I want to change their mind. And by just screaming at them. So even if you're not like, oh, I want to see we're all one humanism, whatever. You guys just do drugs like fuck anyone who voted for Trump. Like I get it. 
But if you really care about those issues, don't you want those people to come over to your side? And if, and in order to do that, don't you have to kind of hear them out? Because when I talk to someone now who politically disagrees with me, I want to find out what are the reasons you think that are good and that you voted for Trump? And they may go, you know, Clinton's part of this establishment and my family's still suffering and I just didn't want another Clinton in office. And then I get to go, cool, I agree with you. You know, or if they go, well, Trump called out the fake news and I get to go, cool, I agree with that too. Now, then I get to go, but do you see what Trump's actually doing is he's not talking about MSNBC being a wing of the Democratic Party because they also shut out Bernie Sanders. It's just the establishment Democrats or Fox News and what they do pandering to Republicans Donald Trump is actually using a very true thing about how our news is corrupt, and he's using that to stifle any criticism of him. And then that person goes, oh, yeah, it does kind of do that. So then you get to go, well, we should both want better representation in the media. So maybe we should start supporting more independent media. But that doesn't mean that Trump's not part of the swamp that he said he wants drained, right? Or again, back to the gun issue. There's a school shooting. I remember I tweeted once, there was a guy who worked for Glenn Beck, as Republican as you can get. And he goes, this school shooting is so horrible. I'm a pro-gun rights guy. I'm a Second Amendment guy. But we have to talk about mental health and white supremacy. This is a guy who works for Glenn Beck saying, we need to talk about white supremacy. So I retweet him and I go, hey, here's a guy on the right who wants to do something about guns. I'm a guy on the left. I want to do something about guns. Let's do it. And a lot of his conservative followers were like, yeah, we have to do something. Too many kids are dying, blah, blah, blah. I lost followers that day. I lost a dude who I was like Twitter friends with who was like, well, then he shouldn't have voted for Trump or then he shouldn't work for fucking Glenn Beck. And it's like, cool, dude. Like you can call him out, but he's saying he wants to do something. And also- Isn't that even more important to have someone who works for Glenn Beck saying, oh, we got to talk about white supremacy and gun laws, because then that gets to get to Glenn Beck and then that gets to get to his millions of followers, you know? Um, But again, we just want to watch people fucking burn. Well, there's something about the social media in general, particularly Twitter, but all of them. I don't know, man. I I feel like we do not fully understand how this stuff works on our psychology and the parts of our being. And, and I feel like we're putting gasoline on some kind of fire yes. without really recognizing what role it's playing in not just the discourse and what it does to our sense of polarization, but actually perhaps how it's changing our brains. Oh, so yeah. So I can speak to this anecdotally, but from with me and to get away from this fucking political stuff, which is... So I started doing a thing where I wouldn't check my phone. I would turn my phone off at night. I kind of wake up on my own at like the same time. And so phone off at night, I would meditate while making coffee. And then I would read for a half an hour, just a book, whatever book I'm reading before I look at my phone. Then 
even though I said I was going to be celibate after my breakup, turns out, uh, single guys listening, uh, if you want more women than uh, you've ever known would like you hitting you up, just be like a normal dude trying to find himself and say you want to be celibate. And oh my God. So I finally caved and I was saying no, I was saying no, I was saying no. And then I met a cool girl and we were talking for a bit and planning this trip and all this stuff. And so because of that, I started checking my phone right away because I wanted to see her. I wanted to talk to her. And the days I would start off looking at social media, texting, whatever, I could barely fucking meditate. And what was really interesting is I couldn't fucking read. I would notice that every page, I would suddenly put my phone down or sorry, put the book down, check on my phone, or I would have to like read passages over and over again, because when first thing you do is look at Instagram and Twitter and all these flashes and like bad news and stuff that doesn't involve you, your mind is working. You're essentially pandering to ADD. Like your mind is in this crazy ADD space, which I have already. Whereas reading a book I'm training my brain to just like be slow, like take information. One thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so meditating and reading first, I mean, dude, my entire day, like the days where I'm really scattered and having trouble figuring stuff out, I can directly trace it to, oh, that's the day I got on my phone at 530 instead of waiting till just 630, but doing things that train my brain to just chill the fuck out. I heard Bruce Damer. He was on my podcast. He's a cool guy talking about, I don't know if it's his idea or a a science study about when your eyes are darting around a computer screen or your phone and flapping between information. It's like lighting up that part of your brain that remembers being on the planes, looking around for danger. Oh, that makes so much sense. It's just old school. It's just like that's baked into your physiology. Yeah. Yeah. So what we can do about that is, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, how do we evolve? What we can do is just be aware of that. And, you know, I'll still fuck up. I don't know if it was today or yesterday, but I definitely checked my phone. And as I started to check it, instead of being like, well, I'm phoning it in or whatever, I was like, oh, that's right. I don't want the rest of my day to be shitty. And so I turned it off and I went outside. I just, I reset. I was like, I'm gonna take a little walk. And I took a walk and then I came back and I made myself meditate and I made myself re- and I felt my body being like, but you were already on your phone. Go to the phone. It's totally mm-hmm. the Gollum Lord of the Rings precious. <laughs> and then I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, or if you fuck up, you just be honest with yourself and you're like, all right, today's going to be a little scattered. I did this to myself. What precautions can we take to start off tomorrow morning even better, you know? And then you just do that and you, you start again. So it sounds like when you moved out of LA and I think a little bit of a psychedelic influence in your life, there's been a kind of opening or continued growth, acceleration of growth that you find um, healthy and you're happier. um, We're moving in that direction where it feels more holistic. Uh, Does that make your comedy better? So we'll find out. Because <laughs> well, it I sounds have, like I as far as the creation of it, it is yeah, the mean, creation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Audience wise. I mean, I haven't done a show. Oh, you know what show I did do? The only show I did since psychedelics was, you know, Shane Moss. He was on my show. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's fun- right. 
we you, talked at an interesting moment for him, but I, I, I did his psychedelic stand-up show because he happened okay. to be in Tucson. And yeah. so I got to talk about it. I mean, I think I opened up with uh, wanting to do, I, I made a joke about it. I'm like, I'm going to do some observational comedy. And I'm like, who here tripped yesterday while listening to Ram Dass and found God? And of course, like, you know, <laughs> would that work at a comedy club? Probably not. Uh, did it kill there? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I think that even if it doesn't affect the content of my standup, which obviously it is, it is... I, 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 I think exploring more with psychedelics and nature and being outside of LA, like we were saying before, it just gave me permission to follow my heart and talk about what I want to talk about. And quite honestly, if I do these headlining stand-up gigs that I have and I find myself starting to pander or do more offensive stuff, and it's not true to who I am, then I may just bounce and focus on music and focus on my podcast and focus on, you know, whatever. It, it, Psychedelics also gave me the permission to, when we were talking about earlier, I haven't talked about this uh, even on my show yet, uh, when we were talking about earlier, um, that subconscious part in your brain that wants to pander, things are going really well for me right now. So I naturally was thinking about moving back to LA and, uh, <laughs> and then I like was looking at places in San Diego because I'm like, okay, San Diego is still on by nature, but I'm not in LA. And th then I just had to shake myself and say, no, the reason things are going better is because for some fucking reason, you're making the best art you've ever made outside of Tucson, Arizona, and you need to keep doing that. And so what I did was I bought a car and cause I haven't needed a car. So I bought a car and then I took a trip up to LA this weekend and I was like, great, that's going to be my compromise. I get to come back here to the mountains, to nature. I mean, dude, I, I take walks at 6am and am flooded by literal bunny rabbits, like running out to yeah, me. It, right. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, of course I'm creating good art right now. But then now I'll drive to San Diego. I was listening to the Beastie Boys audiobook, which Jesus, if you haven't heard it, it's so good. And I'll do these road trips once a month, hit a podcast. I'm going to do, uh, I, I, I think you're French. So I'm going to do Aaron Alexander's podcast and the Minimalist podcast next month. I'll, if stand-up clubs are opening, I'll do that. But then I'm going to get the fuck out of there recharge and create here. But I had that part of me where I was like, now I need Comedy Central to like me and I want to meet with my agent. Like I still have agents, but they're not going to hear me shit talk to them because they're bad and they don't listen to my art or support me. Um, <laughs> and so, but I, I still have that. I want them to like me and I want LA to like me. And yeah, I'm not going to do that. And, and psychedelics really... What they did was, because what was interesting is when I was in LA, I was starting to do all this self-work and meditating and that helped for sure. But then when I started with the psilocybin, when I was down here, and it, it was interesting because I got it for me and my girlfriend because she'd mm -hmm. never got it. And then my... Right after Christmas, my cat died, who was like my best buddy, and my girlfriend left in like the same week. It was like a very bad country. Oof. 
Yeah, it was just swap out like cat for dog and and girlfriend for truck. <laughs> and I it was awful. And I've never been alone. I've never been single, um codependent. And I still had these mushrooms and fucking Valentine's Day came up and I was like this could be the worst idea. Yeah, this from a set and setting point of view, you're you're really rolling the dice. I'm rolling the yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. I'm, roll, I'm totally rolling the dice. But I just felt it so strongly where mm. I was like I feel like this is also sort of putting a stamp on like I'm going to be okay, you know? And so, but that's why I had your music. I had the Ramdas documentary. I had I wrote out my intentions and even though this uh, this place I live in had my cat and had my girlfriend there was something that it felt very no it's mine and it's where I'm supposed to be and this is the first Valentine's Day I've ever been single and I also thought it was kind of funny. I was just like, how great is it to be single on Valentine's Day and doing mushrooms? I'm like, oh, you guys think your uh, Valentine's Day was good because you were with your significant other? I was with everybody. I was with fucking <laughs> Ramdas's ghost. I was with God. I was, you know, and dude, it ended up being, it was insane. It was everything. It was me finding the blanket I hid because I was freezing, even though it was 82 degrees in my apartment. And instead of going to my bed, I found Talib. Uh, my cat's name was named after the rapper Talib Kweli after I got to open for him. So it was Talib Kitty. I found Talib's blanket that I thought I threw out in a closet I don't go in and was kind of wrapped up in that. I Everything you hear and that people have talked about on your show from forgiveness to seeing heroes that have passed to be, you know, the becoming yeah. one with nature. And we're, we're talking, it's been months now. And I stopped to look at plants like shit I haven't done ever. Um, and it ended up being, yeah, the most wonderful day experience of my life. And it's funny. I was offered to do ayahuasca a couple weeks later. And I was like, no, I'm still recovering from this. At, at a dinner party, I presume? Or? At a dinner party, yeah. It was my fucking L.A. friends. After uh, drink, ayahuasca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, chocolate, ayahuasca, tea. <laughs> and uh, and I said no because I was like, I'm still gaining from this mushroom okay. trip. Mm -hmm. And then I did psychedelics. Uh, I did mushrooms a couple weeks ago. Same deal by myself, not as much. And I'm still just learning and learning and learning and, uh, yeah, man, it's, it, it's influenced absolutely everything. That's beautiful. Do you know, the tricky part for me, and I bet you can speak to this is when you're essentially, well, I, I know for myself, I'm, I'm wanting to awaken something in myself that is dormant in the culture. That is the, uh, counterculture. It's the, it's the, the, the tender new growth, all the things that's on our edge that I want to see in myself and I want to see in the world. But the, the, you're also trying to propagate that by being successful in the system that you want to change. Right. So you get in this weird space of like, I want to be accepted. I want to be successful. But by being successful, I'm somehow, I must be uh, pulling at the strings in the way that titillates the system itself. Yeah. And, and that is the dance. But That's even a, like, yeah. even the way Ramdas became incredibly popular at the end of his life, like more than he'd ever have been, his relevancy. Now that makes perfect sense to me. But he's successful. Uh, I mean, yes, it, it speaks to a hunger in, inside all of us of that it maybe that hunger is even stronger and stronger 
But I know for myself, the dance, you know, the, 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 the edge I have to walk is, is, is hard and because you don't want to fall off through pandering through the things to become the system, become lost in it. Dude, I've never heard it put it that way. That's such a great, that's so interesting. I might have an answer. Not that I necessarily do it all the time. But not an answer. I just figured you must dance in this as well a little bit. Because anytime you start to awaken to these larger things that are yeah. truths, that are hard, especially in comedy, because it's not easy. I can go on stage and actually talk about <laughs> we're one. And I can, and people are like, great, let's go there. If, Like you said, you do that on stage, people are like, I'm not laughing. Oh, what if it's I true. could? You know? This to me would be fascinating. And that's sort of the goal. You know, and, and and I think there are ways to do it. You know, I started making this kind of like spoken word type music thing and I want to write about, I love the idea of having a song called I Took Mushrooms Alone on Valentine's Day or something like that. You know what I mean? Like there are ways to do it. It's like what I what I do with politics now. How can How can I use humor to avoid being preachy or avoid people thinking they're, hearing the same sort of cliches over and over again. And I think there are ways to do it. And when you were talking about the system, what I thought was my quote unquote answer, because there is no answer, but it's, you know, what if instead of trying to appease the system, we just try to appease the people because whether the people hear about you from a record label or from Aubrey or from Naco or from Kingsbury or whatever, they're still finding you. So I think that urge to be like, I want to get in front of as many people as possible. I think that can still be very pure, but if it's for me, I'm so much more excited to do a podcast like this than I would be to do Conan again, because I'm like, well, these are my people, you know, and even the things I got, the things I got back in the day, my agents, you know, everything I sent my fucking agents money for, they didn't get. Um, mm -hmm. It That's was a typical story. I mean, it, yeah, it was through lot. artists. I mean, Robin Williams got me so much. Um, uh, Doug Stanhope, wow. like these comedians, these artists I loved and respected. You know, I heard you recently on our friend. I think it was were you, on Kyle? you were on both. I think I heard you on Kyle's podcast or, or on someone's podcast talking about your Australian tour with Nako. And it's like, you know, there's an amazing artist who brought you along and, and you got in front of that crowd and that those people, I'm so much more interested in that. And the times I go, but I still want to get on comedy central, but I still want to get on Netflix. You know, it's funny me and the booker of Netflix got into a political fight on Twitter like eight years ago and he <laughs> nice. wasn't working. He wasn't working at uh -oh. Netflix and he, he gave me my first opportunity. He got me into something called the Montreal comedy festival, which is like the biggest deal for comedy. And he was a huge supporter of mine and a huge fan of mine. And then I ended up yelling at him about like something that was happening in Palestine or something. And, and by the way, I was not nuanced about it. He was like, Israel has the right to defend himself. And I'm like, you want dead kids. Like it was bad. It was rough. <laughs> and you know, we blocked each other on Twitter and now he is literally the king in comedy. Ooh. And I was trying to think about like, should I try to do something? Should I, I really want a Netflix special? And instead I just did what I said didn't doesn't work. And I posted about this comedy special I really loved that Ben Schwartz, Thomas Middleditch improv special on Netflix. He saw it. He DM'd me on Instagram. 
I didn't ask him to look at my standup. I didn't ask him, didn't bring up Netflix. And I just go, hey man, I really hope you're well. I looked at his Instagram. He has like a family now. They're beautiful. And we just had this wonderful conversation. Does that mean I'll end up on Netflix? I don't know, but it doesn't matter because I wasn't thinking about how do I get on Netflix? I was thinking about how do I connect with this person as a fucking human? And so, and why do I really want to get on Netflix? Why would you want a big record label or to be played on the radio? Well, because you want to, you want people to hear you. But there's also part of me that wants those things because I want validation and I want the people who said I couldn't do it that's to go, the dance. Yeah. yeah that's to go, the, oh, it's he has always going to be both. Yeah. yeah. He has the record deal or he has the Netflix special. That's just what all of your enemies know as success. But if you're, I mean, look at like, like fish is such a good example. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> but like, I grew up loving fish and. It was always funny to me, and I've talked to members of Fish and Dead and & Company, and, it, it, I, and I always bring this up to them. It was always so funny that punk rock had such a problem with hippies because they were doing the same thing. They were subverting the industry. They were building their own audience. They were getting success without radio play. And, you know, Fish not only can sell out 14 nights at Madison Square Garden, they can build Burning Man-type festivals. And it's easy for us to make fun of them but don't they kind of win? You know, didn't the, I mean, the dead, yeah, the, they, they could give a shit, you know, it's, yeah. yeah. And so the, the map for me and you is out there. It's just quieting that voice that goes, yeah, but if you have a Netflix special, that X who is really shitty, you will we'll see it. You know what I mean? Like that, that shouldn't matter. So, so my answer is when that voice happens about quote unquote selling out or pandering, it's like, no, we want to get to those people but we don't need those institutions. So it's how do we get to those fucking people? You opening for Nako is For the record, I, I didn't, I opened for Trevor Hall, not Nako, but- Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. It's all G, just, just, just so people- Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. you opening there is gonna get in front of more people than, or I'm sorry, in front of the right people. Compared mm -hmm. to if you're on the radio, you know, do you know Eddie Bravo? Uh, not personally. He's a wild man. Okay. So yeah. Eddie Bravo is wild. <laughs> and, and I love Eddie and I've interviewed Eddie and I've trained with Eddie. Um, I don't know him too well, but when I started making these jujitsu videos, I was like, man, I really want Eddie to repost one of mine. I really want Eddie to repost one of mine. And then I made some video that I knew Eddie would repost and he did. And, uh, I would say... 90% of his fans are fucking garbage <laughs> and they're just trying to be funny and offensive. And like, everyone was like, call me Brian Callen. And I was like, Oh, you're all, you're monsters. <laughs> Conversely, uh, someone with way less of a following than Eddie and who's just popular in the jujitsu world, but is really cool and stands up for things and tries to bring down these kind of gross institutions within jujitsu he posted about me yesterday and I got like a thousand new followers and they all seem <laughs> dope. And so isn't that better? Isn't Trevor Hall better than the mainstream pop radio? Isn't well, sure. Sure. I, I think we'll be in our deathbeds. I, I feel quite confident. It's I'm not going to care about what I did. It's going to be how I did it. Yeah. And I, I feel that in my heart now, and that's sort of the driving force when I do start to have my own humanity come in and, and start to be concerned about this or that. Uh, and it, look, 
it's tricky when, especially these days, it's the Wild West and, and you are often your own manager, like you're saying, your own agent. Uh, make You have to make decisions. You do have to be inside that system. Yeah. But what's really can be uh, the beautiful artistry of those artists that I find, they somehow can swim in that space where they can be quite influen- influential and doing really interesting art. But man, are they staying on top of what's authentic to them? Right. Whatever their truth is to them, and that to me is finding your voice. Yes, it, it's 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 like it takes a long time to trust yourself and to say like what actually really matters. Yeah, I mean, boy, we both, you and I, have so much to be grateful for, and no doubt, I will speak to the privilege that helped me get here, and I can't change that, but I recognize it. Yeah, I and- had a lot of uh, helpful steps along the way that were essentially given to me. That allowed me to fulfill the gifts that I have. But all I can do is be in service to the gifts I've been given and try to put them out into the world in a way that is the purest. Meaning it's not always going to be totally pure. It isn't. There's no way it can be inside this system. But I I can keep every time I make a mistake, I I can try to correct it and and do my best. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, where my challenge is going to be is... And I'm glad you said that because I also realized that right now I'm just kind of in my own world, you know, and the times that I've fucked up have been when I was starting to get success and people were like, do this, keep doing this. And then I would right now it's just me, you know, but once my agents start being like, hey, why don't you do it? You know, once they start caring, once I blow up enough on my own and those offers start to come in, that's where the real challenge is going to lie. It gets very tricky then. Yeah. Well, but I will say I, I I had one moment, thank God, where when I kind of uh, rock bottomed out and stopped being part of the cancel culture world, a ton of Republicans were like, come on our show, come on our show, because they wanted me to just like bash the left. And I went on Glenn Beck's show. Wow. And I was liberal as fuck fuck on that show. And I had, I went on some other shows on his network. I mean, dude, I used to have Glenn Beck on my resume because he called me a doofus way back in the day. So my resume (laughs) for my press blurb, it was like something really nice Robin said about me, something Rolling Stone said about me. And then it was Glenn Beck, again, on my resume saying Jamie Kilstein is a doofus. Mm -hmm. And... I went on the show and we just talked about shit we agreed with. And I didn't, I, 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 I spoke about Palestine and war and mental health and all this stuff. And that was really important. However, then I start to get a bunch of conservative followers and I go, Oh, maybe I shouldn't tweet about AOC or maybe I shouldn't tweet about Bernie. And then I go, it was that moment. I got a book deal offer to essentially like shit on the left when I had zero money and it was so tempting. And I could have talked to myself. I could have been like, no, no, no. I can like get conservatives to like see my, and it would have been a lie. And I think that that moment when I was at my lowest and really needed that and needed people just liking me, being able to walk away from that, I'm really hoping kind of set the bar. Then I left LA Then I started taking psychedelics. So I'll always have to keep myself in check. You'll always have to keep yourself in check. But I'm hoping that was my sort of like, at least one of my hero's journey moments. And I'm like, all right, I did right. No doubt. Yeah. Did you feel though, it's hard. It's even hard to say like, I'm going on a right show versus a left show, which is, I guess it's obvious. But did you feel that the left 
Like you didn't have a home anymore. Yes. Like you had to do I, that. I mean, when I went, when I went, uh, the last time I went on Rogan's was like two years ago, maybe uh, people were like, I guess Jamie's alt right now. And it's like, whoa, like Rogan's <laughs> crazy. really liberal, you know? I mean, I'll even hear Aubrey. I don't know Aubrey. I'm really good friends with Kyle Kingsbury, but I'll even hear Aubrey say stuff on a show jokingly where I'm like, man, that would even get him in trouble on the left. And it's like, Aubrey's just some guy who's like, let's all be spiritual and lift weights. And like, I, but knowing my old crew of people, I'm like, oh, you can say that. Right, that's, like, right, that's a right. dicey joke. And so I had to kind of stop caring. But where I almost fucked up with kind of flirting a little too much with the right is that sense of wanting a tribe and wanting community. Even though I said, hey, tribalism got me in trouble before. And I hate it. I didn't like that. I didn't like who I ended up becoming when the other tribe goes, oh, well, but come here. We're a great tribe. Yeah, right. And, you know, <laughs> join when, our gang. Yeah. And what's interesting <laughs> is you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. But when I thought about my actual beliefs, and this is what's really nice. What's nice about rock bottoming is you get to find out who you are and what you actually believe in. You know, I know that I could make a ton of money being a fucking conservative pundit or whatever. And I know that the things I believe, you know, because I'm not really part of the left anymore will bring me no money, but it's kind of beautiful just to be like, Oh, I just believe in these things because that's who I am. And my career, it doesn't affect my career. It doesn't affect my finance. It doesn't affect my friends. I just believe in, you know, uh, equality and being against the fucking the, the, the democratic establishment is fucking just as bad as the Republican establishment. But you know, I, I want justice for uh, Palestinians. I, I, I believe in black lives matter, I, all this stuff. And it's really cool just to be like, Oh, there's no financial gain in that. I'm not going to get any attention. I would actually get far more attention if I was a little more conservative, but I'm not. And honestly, like, I barely watch the fucking news. And ever since I stopped watching the news, I can still talk about politics, but I've just started being a better person, which is also a politically defiant act. You know? Well, yeah, nowadays, absolutely. Uh, regulating your information as a political act, I think that is a stunning statement. Yeah, it's man. True. <laughs> it's and, true. And you know how many more people I help? Like my neighbor just by talking to her because I wasn't on my fucking phone and I started playing with her dog and then I found out her husband died. And by the way, this is after I did psychedelics where I was so upset about Talib and then I was like, oh, I want to start doing more for animals. So I started talking to people more just so I could play with their dogs essentially. And then I found out she lost her husband in October and so I started helping her with the dog while she was going to surgery or teaching people jujitsu, teaching kids jujitsu. Um, doing that instead of yelling at people on Twitter. I'm like, oh, I'm actually helping shape this kid's life. I'm not just yelling at someone I disagree with or getting off my fucking phone when I'm in line at the grocery store. Um, things like this are like, I, I think I said this on Bert Kreischer's podcast, so I'm kind of ripping off myself, but I was the kind of person that if someone was like, Jamie, your mom's on the phone, I would be like, tell her I can't talk. I'm tweeting about feminism. Like I was ignoring mm -hmm. people in my life just to look a certain way online. And now 
for the first time ever in decades. I talk to my mom every week and she's helping me rediscover my like Hawaiian roots and feels like she has purpose. And I'm more interested in that stuff. Um, and again, it goes back to what we were talking about with art. It's just all authentic as opposed to on Twitter, on the internet, I was trying to put on a show to be like, look at how good I am. And I, well, I wasn't bad, but I certainly wasn't who I am now. One is real and right here in front of you. The other is really just sort of beliefs in your head. Yeah. And they're just things we hold. And we're in a space where we have to recognize, uh, if you could say that like psychic ideas or thoughts in our heads have sort of equal value, you have so many throughout your consciousness during the day, you know, how many of them are going to things outside your actual world? Right. Things that really don't even affect your world. Right. You don't need to know everything going on in the world all day. You don't. We're not made that way. You just you certainly don't for your soul development. Yeah, and, and when you, and you feel like you're doing more just because you're taking in more information, but you're actually just kind of stunting yourself and you're doing so much less. This is the challenge of the modern human being. You know, it's like making your own path. And I'm not saying it's easy because no. there are charlatans and there are snake oil salesmen. At every corner, digital corner, you know, of our day. And they're vying for your attention with the best skills and best minds ever to put on this. And it gets you quick. It's like tobacco meets meth, you know. Yeah, man. It's And so I think some of us are starting to self-regulate. And uh, I think that's just, I really hitting home with this idea about, you know, regulating information is the biggest political act you can do. I mean, that's almost like the most activism you can do. And that there's, that's sort of an incendiary statement, you know, because especially in the spiritual world, I'd say the biggest critique of it is spiritual apathy or spiritual bypass or the idea you're not doing anything, you know, but we have to change our perspective on what is actually influential. What does it mean to really be an influencer? And it's not always just about quantity, and about numbers. It has something to do about the energy of it. And that's can easily be taken down from a rationalistic standpoint, but my heart tells me we have a lot to learn about yeah. what actually influences our lives and other people. Well, and if you're being honest with yourself, you know when you're not watching the news because you're just like, this is too much and you want to be apathetic and you're like, ah, what's going to happen is going to happen. Or what I really try to do now is okay, I'm not watching the news. I don't know as much about what's going on. How can I help people as much as possible? I'm trying to make up for, I'm not like I'm watching the news, therefore I'm going to go work on Wall Street and make a bunch of money and yeah, spend it all on my Just close coat. your eyes to yeah. the misery, yeah. Right, exactly. When, if, when I find out like injustice is happening that I believe in, I'm all over it. But what I found is, making people laugh. My, my podcast is not political anymore. It used to be political. I had very famous people saying during a primary season, if you want your, this is when your podcast can blow up. And it was so miserable that I was like, I'm not going to do it. And I started talking about more mental health and uh, interviewing artists about failure and stuff like that on my podcast. I think next week I'm going to change the name of my podcast to uh, a fuck ups guide to self-help right now. It's just the Jamie Hillstein podcast, but, and I lost thousands of listeners for sure. However, uh, the emails I'm getting, I don't care. Like 
even if I have to start again with 500 listeners or whatever, um, I know I'm actually helping people. And I think that's that balance of, okay, I'm not going to watch the news, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be selfish. It means how can I tweeting about Trump isn't going to help anybody if I'm being realistic Hmm. because everyone's doing that. But talking to other people, I call my podcast listeners misfits, talking to misfits and outcasts and artists about, you know, helping them feel normal or helping them realize that being unique and not fitting in is actually really cool and, and matters. And it's wild, dude. I have listeners from like 50 year old vets to 18 year old gay punks. And they're this, they're becoming this community. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's how, that's my political statement. That's how I'm going to give back. And yeah, if one day Trump is like, we're rounding up black people. It's like, yes, I'm back in the streets. I'm political. A hundred percent. But right now it's just the media just trying to get you to click on things and be angry and scream at people who don't agree with you. And I don't want to be part of that system. None of us do. And yet we are in the system, whether we like it or not, but we don't have to put kindling on the fire with every tweet. And uh, it's it, it is a beautiful act, really, to say, like, look, I am I'm conscious of the fact that I'm navigating something that is nuanced and and problematic and yeah. contradictory. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. And yeah. that's the way it is. And that's make, what it means to be alive today. Yeah. Make art. Go outside. Don't be a dick. Uh, make, I mean, me and you wouldn't have met. Yeah, we want to become friends if I was just doing the political stuff. Um, but look, we got to talk about politics in a really like nuanced, I think, important way. But the, 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 it wasn't a fucking political episode or we're like, take this guy down. Like, I think yeah, your listeners yeah, figured out some beliefs we have. But the larger idea of tribalism, the lar- I mean, really, it tied into everything we were talking about. Relationships, politics and art. It all came down to being authentic and speaking your truth. And, you know, it it was kind of under the same umbrella. Boom. There you go. (laughs) Killed it. Guys, what I'm trying to say is we're very good at podcasting. (laughs) Man, thanks, Jamie. I'll, uh, always link to your stuff in the show notes. Yeah, and, please. Um, Guys, this is no, super easy tra- talking to, to you. So. Yeah, I'm trying to get off Twitter. So mainly follow me on Instagram, please. <laughs> okay, we'll put that there too. And um, thank you. I hope we can do it again. Dude, anytime. You're the best. Thanks, Jamie, for coming on the show. I just appreciate uh, prodding and poking and getting you to respond because I enjoy uh, your full-throated open-heartedness and sharing your ideas. I I dig that. Thank you. And I hope we can do it again sometime. This music you're hearing in the background is the We Are Truth, the album Leaf Rework from the Reworks album. That is the Ram Dass Reworks album. It's on all streaming platforms. I love this one. I've been a big fan of the album Leaf for many, many years. So it was a great honor to have them come on board and create this rework for the album. Uh, Check out the Born Eye I Can't Breathe East Force Rework on streaming platforms. It's a great way to support if you haven't already. And thanks again for giving the podcast a review. You know, you can also always send money if you just want to support financially at info at eastforce.org. That's the PayPal address and Trevor-Oswalt on Venmo. All those people who did that with the ceremony concert, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the council, people came to the East Force Council it's really, it really helps, and it means a lot to me to uh, to be in a community together in these COVIDian times. Uh, I have some ideas about how to do different things with virtual events and streaming, but 
Uh, more on that later. For now, you guys just keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit. But if you do, you know what to do. Do it with grace. Soul come.